You will want to get your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 2, which is one of the Bible's most fascinating stories. And I want to just say as we get started, I am pretty sure that when you were driving to church, you did not have this thought. You know, I really hope that I can learn some important spiritual lessons today from an ancient prostitute. You didn't think that. But that is exactly what is going to happen today. This is week two of our series, Fearless, Facing Our Future. We've been studying and we're going to continue to study this fall in the ancient book of Joshua. We're going to be learning each week how we can live faithfully, uh, how we can follow the Lord in the 21st century. And today we're going to be looking at the story of Rahab. It is a story that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. It explodes our categories. But it's a story that tells us something wonderful and beautiful about God. Now, as we saw last week, this book of Joshua is a book that tells us we don't need to fear the future because God is a promise-keeping God. God always keeps the promises he makes to us. And today, we're going to learn some of that uh, through this ancient Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. Rahab is actually one of the most surprising characters in the Bible. She turns up in several unexpected places. One of those is Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is often called the Faith Hall of Fame. It's this sprawling, glorious celebration of God's ancient and greatest servants, how they lived, how they trusted God. I want you just to listen to some verses from this chapter, starting in verse 27. Uh, The author writes, By faith Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh, the world's most powerful man at that time, because he saw the invisible God and knew that God was more powerful. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. After the people had marched around them for seven days, verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, and it's like, uh, what? Excuse me, uh, did we just read that right? Yeah, verse 31 says, by faith, The prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. See, Hebrews 11 just gives us this amazing recounting of all of these incredible faith heroes of the Old Testament, what happened in the real world as a result of their faith. And right in the middle of all that glory, there's Rahab the prostitute. And it just kind of jumps off the page. You don't expect it. I mean, First of all, we know in those days women were second-class citizens. On top of that, she's a prostitute. And and I'm going to try to keep this PG, but some scholars believe 
that the etymology of her name is essentially a derogatory word for part of the female anatomy. To put it politely, you would label her in these terms a whore. Rahab, the prostitute. But Rahab, her name turns up in this list of who's who. Her name is forever in the faith hall of fame. So who is she? And what's her story? Let me set the scene for us again. Last week, you'll remember, we saw that the year is 1406 B.C. The nation of Israel is poised on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Canaan, the promised land, is just across the river on the other side. Israel is being led by a man named Joshua, and God has told Joshua that he is going to lead the people into the land. God says, this is the promised land. It's yours. I'm giving it to you, so take it. And as we're about to see, Joshua sends some spies in to check things out and report back all that they learn. They start with this city of Jericho. It's the first thing they're going to encounter. Jericho was an important city at that time. Jericho is also the self-proclaimed oldest city in the world. Uh, Archaeologists uh, think that it's over 9,000 years old. And so even this far back, it was an important city. It was a very strategic place. Most of us have heard stories uh, about the walls of Jericho. It was a city that was thought to be impenetrable, not only because of these reinforced walls, but also because it was a self-sustaining city. It was a city that had springs within the the city walls, and so the, the inhabitants always had fresh water. They could always grow food. And even today, you go to Jericho, and you can see some of these springs still pouring out thousands of gallons of crystal clear water every day. Jericho was the first city the nation of Israel had to conquer, and it seemed like it was the hardest. But God said, go, this is the promised land, you will take it. So that's the backstory. Here's the story of Rahab. Verse 1 says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. And that is an unfortunate name for a city. (laughs) Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, there's lots of details that we just don't get. They enter the town. Next thing we know, they're in the house of this woman, Rahab the prostitute. How did they get there? We don't know. Most likely, they met her out on the street where we can assume she would have been trying to drum up some business. And we can also assume that a prostitute would have been pretty skilled at recognizing strangers entering the city. And she would have wanted to make their acquaintance. So we don't know how it happened, but we can be confident at the root of it all, God is sovereignly at work making this happen. She meets these spies. She invites them to stay at her home. And sometimes this word uh, translated house could be also translated like an inn, uh, a place for people to lodge as they traveled. A house of prostitution back then was also often a place of lodging. People who traveled uh, would need a place to eat and a place to sleep, both kinds of sleeping, and you know. And these places were also often places where people would gather to transact various kinds of business. So it wouldn't have been unusual or conspicuous for someone like these spies to go 
to a place like this. But somehow, these spies are found out. It's kind of interesting. These spies aren't very good, evidently, at the spy business. Because <laughs> they get there, and it's like almost immediately, they're, they're known to be there. Some people think it could have been because Jericho wasn't that large of a city. Uh, a lot of scholars think it was less than a couple thousand people living there at this time. At any rate, the king is alerted that the, some strange men are visiting Rahab's house. Verse 2 The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now we know uh, of an ancient Babylonian law from around this time that states that if a prostitute takes in a spy, it is her patriotic duty to report that spy to the authorities. So This happened evidently at other times. They made a law about it. And at any rate, these verses let us know that Rahab is about to be put in a very difficult position and is going to test her faith in the Hebrew God. Verses 4 through 7 says, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. And you kind of hear the urgency in her voice. She's kind of persuading them in the Hebrew text. These words kind of tumble out really quickly, just like it kind of sounds as you read it in English. Verse 6 says, But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So the king says, where are they? And what does Rahab do? Well, she lies. She lies. She deceives the king. She hides the spies. And do not miss, this is what she's actually known for. Again, we see it, Hebrews 11, 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are disobedient. James 2, 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Joshua 6, 17, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. In other words, Rahab's faith manifested itself in the protection of these spies. And and her faith is not shallow because... If she's caught, she will be killed. Most likely, her head will be separated from her body. Most likely, her family will also be executed as well. Why would she do this? Well, as we're going to see, it is because she wants to be counted among the people of God. Now, keep in mind, Rahab doesn't know a whole lot. She has no religious education. She doesn't know who the patriarchs are. She has not been trained by anyone in Torah. Some of you rule keepers are going to struggle with this when she doesn't even know God's law. She doesn't even know how to keep the rules because she doesn't even know really what the rules are. And yet, yet, somehow, some way, she believes that the God of the Israelites 
was the supreme God. You know, some of you, uh, maybe even now, you're kind of struggling with the fact that she lied. And I could actually help you to understand that, but I won't. There's actually been a lot of discussion over the years. There's a lot of literature written about this. Was Rahab right to lie or was this wrong even though God used it for good? And I'm just not going to answer this question this morning. I mean, I was tempted to, but I won't. And here's the reason why. It's really not the point of the story. Now, you can look it up later if you want. Knock yourself out. There's a lot of stuff out there. But as you do, as you look that up, do not miss what the story is actually about. Because there's something much greater here, and we're about to read it. It is found in her declaration of faith. Verses 8 and 9 says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, Now stop, just imagine the passion that would have been in her voice at this point because she knows that if this goes bad, it will be very bad for her, very bad for her family. She says to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She says, everybody's freaking out right now about you melting in fear because they've heard the stories. I mean, one minute you guys are slaves in Egypt. The next minute you're crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. One minute you are slaves. The next minute you've got this massive army. And I know your God has done all of this for you. Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Now think about this. That happened 40 years earlier, and they're still talking about it. Everybody is still talking about it. I mean, think about this, too. <laughs> For 40 years, while the people of God, the Israelites, are wandering around in the wilderness why? Because they were afraid of the people in the land. They did not trust God to take care of them. While they were wandering around in the wilderness, dying off one after another, after another, after another, dying for 40 years. While all this was going on, the people inside the land were trembling in fear because of them. They didn't trust God, and they missed out. Rahab says, we've heard these stories, what you did to the two kings you devoted to destruction. And we got the message, when you guys are devoted to destroying, it's bad. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted. Again, this, this phrase, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, again, just hear this language our hearts is melting. As soon as we heard it, literally in the Hebrew text, it's like it says there was no spirit left in us. It's like <laughs> empty. Because of you, she says. Because the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. I hope you see that this is Rahab's declaration of faith. And it is an amazing declaration of faith for a pagan, polytheistic, Canaanite prostitute to make. These words show us that Rahab's faith 
in God is all-inclusive and exclusive. You hear what she's saying here. Out of all the gods we have, and there's gods everywhere in her land, gods everywhere. Here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God. They're all over the place. All kinds of shrines, all these sacred trees, all about trying to appease all these gods. Rahab says, your God is the God of the heavens and earth. He is God over everything. That's all-inclusive. And that means, don't miss this, that means he is the only God. It's an exclusive claim. There are no other gods. There is only one God. That's what Rahab is declaring. That is what we believe. And Rahab also sees that this God, and she uses his personal name, Yahweh. He's not distant. Your God, he's not some far-off, detached God like our gods. He's not like the capricious Greek and Roman gods somewhere up there, who knows where, doing their thing, who just mess around with humans when they get bored. He's not like that. Your God is near. Your God has done these things in history for you. And now because of this, She makes a request, one request, verse 12. Now then, please swear by me, to me, by the Lord, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. I think it can be rightfully said that Rahab demonstrates more faith than many of the people living in the nation of Israel, many of God's own people. Again, remember what has happened earlier. Remember 40 years earlier when when they had gone into the land and the the spies had brought back this bad report and as a result of that, they had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness Only two of those 12 spies had believed that God was faithful to his promise. You know, 10 of those 12 spies, they they said when they came back, you know, it is an amazing land. It is a good land, just like God said, but the people are bad. The people are wicked. They're very fierce. They're going to defeat us. And Joshua and Caleb, they were the only ones who said, yes, We can take this land. The land is awesome. The people are big. They are bad. They are pretty fierce. They're really wicked. But God, he says it's our land, so let's go. Rahab has that kind of faith. She says, I believe the stories. I believe in what your God has done and that this land is as good as yours. It is going to be yours. So when it is yours, will you remember me and will you remember what I've done for you? Verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. So she tells them, you know, head for the hills and lie low or whatever other cliches they used back then. Cool your jets. Um, as long as the heat is on till the coast is clear, stay there. 
And, and again, we, we, we notice something about Jericho, how strong these city walls are. She's got a house, and it's built on the wall. It's that big of a wall. It's the kind of wall protecting the city. It's so thick that people are living on the wall. Verse 17, the men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. Verse 19, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. In other words, when we come and we're coming, get yourself inside this house. If anyone leaves this house, no promises. Because when we come, when we do what God is commanding us to do, we are going to take this city and we will take it. But if you stay inside, you will be protected. Verse 21, agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I mean, this is just so cool. It's just such high drama. I mean, just picture her. You can imagine her having this conversation as she's got her family up there and they're all listening in. And then all of a sudden she brings this cord out, this cord that the spies are going to be let down the wall with. And now this cord is hanging outside and this red cord, red rope, it signifies their salvation. That's what it means. Because without this red rope, nobody gets saved inside the house. It almost makes you think of another time when there was some redness painted around the doors, right? You remember when they left Egypt, the angel of death was going to pass over. But only those doors that had the blood of the lamb painted on it, those, those were the people that would be saved. Verse 22 When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. It's like, Joshua, you're not going to believe this report we got. I mean, we got it from this prostitute whose name means um, whore. And oh, and she believes in our God. And she told us all the people in the land, all of them are, are melting away in fear because of us. I mean, this is an amazing story. It's incredible. So what do we learn from it? I want to show you three things this morning, and here's the first one. Number one, God can get his message to anyone, anywhere, anytime. This story shows us, among other things, that God will go to great lengths to save anyone who sincerely seeks to know who he is. And this this speaks to a question that many people, maybe even many of you, still have today. Many, many people will ask, what about all those people who've never heard the gospel? I mean, what about the tribe in some remote area? It's never been discovered yet. I mean, it just doesn't seem fair that they would never have the opportunity to know about Jesus, never have the chance to place uh, their trust in him. I mean, what about those people? Some of you wonder about that. You know, years ago, 
One of the things that began to help me wrestle with this was reading the book of Acts and coming across two very interesting incidents. We actually studied these stories just in the last year. The first one is in Acts chapter 8. There's a story there of an Ethiopian government official. He's a spiritual man. And he is traveling from Jerusalem back to his home. And it seems like he has some sort of belief in the Hebrew God, but he doesn't know Jesus. Meanwhile, there's a Christ follower, and his name is Philip. And the Spirit of God comes to him where he's serving God in a city and tells Philip, I want you to leave what you're doing. I want you to travel down to this road. It's a way out of the way place. And I want you to go there. And he does that. No details. He just goes out of obedience. And Philip gets to this place, and I think he must be looking around, and soon enough, he sees somebody coming, and Philip just happens to show up at this place. You know, coincidentally, and he encounters this Ethiopian, and this Ethiopian government official, this spiritual seeker, just happens, coincidentally, you know, to be reading a portion of the Old Testament, and that portion that he's reading just happens, coincidentally, to be from Isaiah chapter 53, which tells of the suffering servant who will die for the sins of the people. And Philip walks up to this man's chariot and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian government official says, I'm not sure. Is the author speaking of himself or is he speaking about someone else? And Philip says, you know, that's the perfect question to ask. Let me tell you. He says the author is actually speaking about a man named Jesus who is the foretold Messiah And he has now come. And in fact, I can tell you about many more prophecies that have been fulfilled in this man, this Messiah, Jesus. And so Philip shares Christ. He shares the gospel with this Ethiopian directed by the Spirit of God. And as they're traveling along, this Ethiopian says, there's some water. Can I be baptized? And he comes to faith in Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 10... There's another story. This one's about a Roman soldier named Cornelius. He's a centurion. That means he's in charge of 100 soldiers. And he's also a spiritual man. He's also someone who's seeking to understand who God is. And one day he prays to God. He doesn't know Jesus. But he's praying to God. And as he's praying on this particular day, God reveals to him that he's to send someone for this man named Peter. And so he sends his servants out and they get Peter and they bring him back to Cornelius's town. And Peter ends up sharing the gospel with this Roman centurion who is a Gentile, by the way. And God has to help Peter get over his religious prejudice to do this because Peter still thought that the good news of the gospel was only good for people like him. Sometimes... Sometimes God's people get confused about this. You know, you look at these stories, all of this is just to say this. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. If there is anybody anywhere on this planet who is sincerely seeking to know who God is, God knows every single heart. And if you are sincerely seeking and asking God, will you reveal yourself to me? Are you real? You know, who are you? Then God will provide Jesus as the answer. See, the problem is not with God. It never is. The problem is always with the hearts of people. 
See, it doesn't matter if it's some remote tribe that is yet to be discovered. If there is someone in that tribe with a sincere desire to understand who created me, why am I here? I want to know the God of creation. Then God will provide a missionary who will provide something to honor that person's heart. See, Rahab, she is a prostitute. She's living in the land of Canaan. And this is a dark and oppressive place in Canaan at this time. They, they practiced child sacrifice. They, they killed their own children to appease their evil gods. These were people who were engaged in all kinds of immoral behavior that really would be like not appropriate to discuss in a place like this. They were wicked. They were perverted. This was a jacked up, messed up culture. And in the midst of all of that, there's this woman, Rahab, and she's a prostitute. You may be here this morning. You may be thinking, well, that was back then. But you know, today, there are some places that you just can't get the gospel to. You can't penetrate those cultures. That is not true. And we could be here for a long time talking about the stories that have been emerging from many, many places around the world where, where Christians in the West have thought you can't get the gospel to those places. For example, I read just this last week about some stuff going on in Morocco. And Morocco is a Muslim nation. is a very spiritually dark and oppressive place. But God has people there. He always does. And reports are getting out that the gospel is going out and Jesus is being made known. You know how? God is revealing Jesus through dreams to Muslims. To Sunni Muslims, the hardcore militant type, that they're having dreams about Jesus and they are approaching Christians very covertly and saying, I had this dream about Yeshua. Can you tell me about him? This is not just happening in Morocco, it's happening all across the Muslim world. If there is any heart that is seeking to know who God is, God will connect with them. See, we don't need to worry about them. We don't need to let that one trip us up. God will provide the means to provide the knowledge for anyone who wants to know him. Again, the problem is not with God. See, we, we just need to get over that. We don't need to think that God, you know, just needs to provide more proof. If God would just do some more, the truth about it is really this. Think about the history of humanity God creates Adam and Eve, right? He puts them in a perfect environment. He gives them everything they need. And man screws it up. People screw it up. And at that point, you know, I'm saying if I'm God, and you should be grateful that I'm not, because I'm grateful that you're not. <laughs> I mean, if I'm God, I'm saying bad experiment, let's start over. But what does God do? God just sets out on a plan to redeem mankind. And if you fast forward through history, you will see how God calls to himself a people through whom others can see who God really is. Then what do those people do? Those people that God has rescued and God has saved and God has called to be his own, what do they do? Well, they constantly turn their backs on God. They rebel and they rebel and they rebel. They follow other gods. And what does God do? Well, God doesn't abandon them at all. God, in an ultimate expression of his love and his mercy, 
in the ultimate way that he can tell all of humanity, will you really accuse me of not going far enough? How about this? How about I send my son, my only son, to die on the cross? See, the problem is not ever with God. God is always communicating something about himself, something about his love, about his mercy, about his patience, about his grace. Second thing I want you to see is that God's saving grace and mercy is for everyone. In other words, if God can save Rahab, no problem for you. No problem for you. Rahab, as I just said, lived in the land of Canaan and all the darkness that was part of that. But by blood, she's also an Amorite. And here's where it gets interesting. According to the law of Moses, there were no deals to be struck with any Amorites. And yet, a deal is struck with her. Why? Well, because of her faith in God, she becomes an exception. The truth of the matter is, because she trusted God, she now becomes a part of this people of God. She now, in essence, becomes an Israelite. You know, some people might say, but, but think about who she was. I mean, think about the life she lives. Think about all those men that she had slept with. What a disgusting reputation. And yet God says, I know all about her past. And it doesn't matter because she has believed in me. Now, this is not in any way to minimize her sin, to minimize any sexual sin. I mean, after all, she is still known uh, throughout Scripture as Rahab the prostitute. But now we see she is forgiven. Now she is free. Now she is becoming a member of the family of God and living under God's care. So having said all that about her, let me ask you this question. What's your problem? What's your problem? I mean, what is your sin? What is it in your life that causes you to think that God really can't reach you. Have you ever read the Bible? I mean, if you read the Bible, just read it actually, you will discover a lot of people just like us. Noah got drunk. Abraham, father of the faithful, he lied more than once. Sarah, his wife, laughed at God's promises. Jacob, their grandson, was a liar and a cheat. Moses stuttered and didn't believe in God's power. David had an affair and he was a murderer. And oh, by the way, so was Moses, a murderer. Jonah ran away from God. Lazarus was dead. Peter was a coward and a loudmouth. Thomas doubted. Paul oversaw the killing of Christians. And Rahab was a prostitute. So, what's your problem? Some of you right now may be sitting here thinking, you know, I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy to be forgiven by God. I don't, I don't feel worthy to go to heaven. I have some really, really good news for you today. Are you ready for it? Only unworthy people make it to heaven. That's the only kind that get in. And if you feel like you have to have all of your life figured out, all of your junk straightened out first, then you need to reread the story of Rahab. If you've really messed up your life, 
Maybe your life is a lot like Rahab. Maybe you're a person and you're just sleeping around with a whole lot of different people. Maybe you're a person who's just making one stupid decision after another. I mean, you make at least two or three every day. Maybe you're a person who just cannot seem to stop doing whatever thing it is that you're doing that keeps destroying your life. You just can't stop. Well, I'm going to say to you this morning, congratulations. You are the perfect candidate for God's grace. You are the perfect candidate for God to save and redeem because this is just what God does. Amen? I mean, some of us, think about this. Some of us actually, I think, fear the future because of our past. We can't get past our past. Some of us think our history is our destiny. But God's grace, as that old hymn says, is greater than all our sin. God's grace and mercy is for everyone. And the same God who kept his promises to his people all those years ago promises to give them a land, a good land, to take care of them. That same God will always keep his promises to save anyone who trusts him. Here's the third thing. God still saves through the color scarlet. I think it's interesting that this cord, this rope is red, just like the blood of the Passover lamb was red. This this red theme gets carried on through the Old Testament on into the New Testament, but now we know from this side of things it's something much better. Now we know it is the red scarlet blood of Jesus that saves. There's a movement right now among a number of young evangelical believers to write books about the love of God, and that's awesome. We need books about the love of God. We need to talk about the love of God. Everyone loves to read about the love of God, but I, I can't tell you about the last time I read a book about the anger of God. Some of you are going, whoa, I don't want that. I mean... God is not an angry God. You sound a little angry about that. Um, But the Bible says, yes, he is an angry God. And I want to say to you today, you want him to be angry. Let me explain. The thing that makes God angry is sin. And if God doesn't get angry at sin, then you don't want to have anything to do with that God because sin is what messes things up. Sin is at the root of all of the pain and all of the misery in your life and in this world, this broken world. Do you want a God who turns a blind eye to that? You know, there's a lot of stories in this room and I don't know many of those stories. But in a room this size, with a group of people this size, I know this. Some of you, some of you were abused as children. Some of you in this room right now have been sexually assaulted. Some of you may be being abused right now. And I am here to tell you today, we want a God to be angry at that. We want a God 
who loves us so much that he will not turn a blind eye to things like that. We want a God of injustice. Do you want a God who doesn't care about justice? You see, this is why God gets angry. God gets upset at sin. Now, here's a problem with this. The Bible describes us as sinners. That means that when God looks at the sinner, he gets angry at the sin. But the good news is God doesn't just get angry. In God's goodness and in God's love, he actually does something to deal with that sin. And that is why Jesus had to die. That is why God still saves through scarlet. It is the blood of Jesus on the cross that offers you forgiveness. Because God gets angry at sin. You know, in the Old Testament, the penalty for sin was the death sacrifice of an animal. It was a very vivid picture. It it, it was meant to tell the people how seriously God took sin. And we often don't take it that seriously. We like to pretend it's not really that big of a deal. But if you lived in Old Testament times and you saw that animal being slaughtered, sometimes you were the one who had to slit the animal's throat yourself. You just got this vivid, vivid picture of the seriousness of sin. You know, for this side of the cross, we know that Jesus He was slaughtered on the cross. It was his blood shed. And because he sacrificed his life, we can be forgiven. Because Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, all our sins can be forgiven. That Old Testament sacrificial system is now done because everything was pointing forward to Jesus. And all that stuff was just shadow of the substance. But the reality is in Jesus Christ. And God still saves through scarlet. One last thing I want to point out. You ever wonder what happens to Rahab? It's an amazing thing. Uh, As we go down through the pages of the Old Testament, we get to the New Testament. We're like 1,400 years down through history now. The New Testament opens up. The first book in the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew. And this, uh, this gospel opens as a record of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And on the very first page of your New Testament, have you ever read this? If you have, you know, Rahab's name gets mentioned. Matthew 1, 5, and 6, among the very first verses of the New Testament, this is what Matthew writes. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And if you keep reading those names in this genealogy, you will see you're reading the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so that means that Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the whore, she's part of Jesus' family tree. You know, if you know Jesus... One day, you're going to meet Rahab in heaven. And I have this feeling we're, we're, we're probably not going to refer to her then as Rahab the prostitute, right? <laughs> probably going to be like Rahab the redeemed. Rahab the precious daughter of God. Or Rahab the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. So what? Well, the message is crystal clear that God is in the business of changing lives. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been, where you've been, what you've done while you've been there. 
God can redeem your life. But it also means this. You may be not like Rahab at all. You may be the kind of person that everyone else would say is a good person. In fact, maybe you come to church and maybe you can come into church for decades. Maybe you serve in church. Maybe you read your Bible all the time. Maybe you even give some money. But the truth of the matter is Rahab may be better off than you. Why do I say that? Because she had a faith that manifested itself in true obedience. And if you are here and if you are somehow in some way trusting in your goodness to gain you favor with God, then Rahab is better off than you. You could be the most moral person in this room. You could be someone who's heard the gospel over and over. Maybe you know it well enough to tell someone else about it, but the truth of the matter is you've never embraced it for yourself. You can even say, I believe the blood of Jesus covers my sin. But until you've truly placed your trust, placed your life in God's hands, trusting in his grace, embracing what Jesus did for you on the cross, you cannot be saved. Because God still, and God always will, save through scarlet, through God's Son, his death on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray?